Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Do you know Dunn Street is now 12 months old? In the last 12 months, we've partnered with organisations across Australia and the globe to train leaders, develop engagement strategies and empower people to organise for change. We've travelled to the Maldives to help fellow Social Democrats build a political party there. We've partnered with Aboriginal Victorians to help register communities for their historic First People's Assembly elections last year. Uh, Dunn Street, we took 10 progressive Australians to Washington DC and New York to connect with leaders in politics, advocacy, tech and organising and we've also developed leadership training courses uh, for people who are running for public office or people who are doing organising in Adelaide, Darwin, Melbourne, Brisbane and we've worked with some of the largest trade unions in the country to develop uh, national, digital and grassroots organising strategies and we've also interviewed the odd leader across the world on our podcast, this one. Uh, But we're just getting started. In 2020, Dunn Street will continue to work with folks that want to make a difference, inspire, hope, and build change from the ground up. And that's our story, and we'd be keen to hear yours. So if you want to connect with Dunn Street, hit us up at dunnstreet.com.au. Today's episode of Socially Democratic is actually recorded in conjunction with the Chifley Research Centre and Australian Labor International. Uh, and the topic of this week's episode is organising. Um, that's something that I've been doing for a very long time. And on this week's episode, we got a bunch of people um, to come in and talk uh, about organising themselves. We recorded this one during the Chifley Research uh, Conference in Sydney late last year. Um, and it's a great opportunity to put it up now and hear from some of these really amazing organisers. Um, and questions like... Was the last Australian election a repudiation of the current organising model of campaigning, which I fundamentally disagree with, uh, and I don't know if I get to share my opinions on that, but now you've heard it. Uh, What are the models being used in civil society, such as the school climate strikers, uh, and where to from here when it comes to organising for change? Well, actually, the answer is we've got a long way to go because we need to do more of it. Um, And also, what can we learn from our um, recent electoral success in uh, regions like Scandinavia? So today on this episode, we're going to hear from uh, Benedict Hugesson, who's an organiser from the Swedish Social Democrats he was out for the Chifley Conference Uh, a young inspiring woman who's a year 10 student in uh, the suburbs of Sydney and is also a youth activist for the school strike for Climate Australia, uh, Danielle Poré-Villafana and the Deputy Chief of Staff to uh, the Premier of Victoria, Daniel Andrews uh, Jesse McCrone and a former field director for the Community Action Network joined us on this week's episode. Don't forget the podcast is now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher and obviously your favourite podcast app. So if you're on Apple Podcasts, don't forget to leave us a rating and a review and also remember to follow us for updates on all of our latest episodes uh, on the Dunn Street socials, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. Also, we haven't planned to do a podcast on the Nevada Democratic uh, caucuses, which are taking place in the US on Saturday, uh, US time. But we've got a lot of feedback from our listeners who have said, are you going to do an episode? Um, So we may do one next week. Be on the lookout for that. I need to actually hit up our usual guest in the US, um, Sam Schneidman, to find out if he's available. Sam, if you're listening, you're going to get a call from me in the next uh, 24 hours. Um, But thanks very much. We really appreciate feedback from everyone uh, on the podcast, uh, particularly on the podcast that we've been doing on the US uh, Democratic primaries. Really appreciate that feedback. And if you do want to give us any more feedback, don't forget you can just send us a message on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook uh, or even LinkedIn. Uh, but let's get to this week's episode. Uh, good afternoon, friends, and welcome to the Organising for Change session. Uh, hello, my name is Stephen Donnelly, and I am the director for Dunn Street, which is a campaign consultancy firm focusing on grassroots organising. And uh, in a previous life, I was the Assistant Secretary of uh, Victorian Labor and the founder of the Community Action Network, which was uh, Victorian Labor's grassroots organising arm that mobilised thousands of Labor supporters uh, across the state to get out there and knock on doors and make calls for Daniel Andrews in the lead-up to the 2014 
election campaign and then obviously his uh, landslide victory in 2018. Uh, let's get to today's session and actually introduce our uh, panellists. So let's start uh, with Danielle uh, Poré-Villafana. Uh, Danielle is a youth activist and a Year 10 student at the Fort Street High School. Uh, she's the lead organiser for... Uh, she's the lead organiser for the School Strike for Climate and uh, the International Fridays for Future Movement as uh, founder and director of Believe Survivors. She's also a strong advocate for dismantling uh, of rape culture. Danielle is, uh, has been a panellist at the Women's March Youth Forum, uh, Girl Up United Nations Foundation Leadership Summit and a member of the Youth Health Policy Planning Reference Group for the New South Wales Minister for Health. Would you please welcome Danielle. Um, our second panellist has travelled a little bit further than uh, Daniels High School. Uh, uh, Benedict Hugerson is an organisational ombudsman for the Swedish Social Democrats focusing on training and membership development. Uh, Benedict has experience in a range of uh, political engagement campaigns, both digital and field, and has led local field campaigns in Stockholm, the national field campaigns for the Social Democrats, and digital campaigns with his work in uh, civic society. Uh, and is trained in the Marshall Gantz model of uh, electoral organising, which has also been adopted by um, Obama for America and the Community Action Network in Victoria and Queensland and Western Australia and Northern Territory and in New Zealand. Would you please give a warm welcome for... And our final panellist is Jesse McCrone. Jesse is the Deputy Chief of Staff to the Victorian Premier, Daniel Andrews, where she heads up uh, their communications and political strategy, digital platforms, earned media and government advertising. Jesse has nearly 15 years' experience as a political and campaign professional, working in both federal and state governments, uh, in trade unions and the organisational wing of the Labor Party and was the former field director for Victorian Labor's Community Action Network. Would you please give a warm Sydney welcome to Jesse. So today's session is about organising for change and what I want to try to achieve with today's session is to uh, ask questions of our, of our panellists and for you to get a, a sense of um, who they are and their expertise that they bring to this conversation. Then we're going to sort of dive into a bit more of the, the subtleties of organising and the, and, the, and the various ways in which we organise communities and... Um, and the structures and the strategies that we use. And we'll talk a bit some about the challenges that we have with uh, community or field or electoral organising. And then we'll talk a bit about the future of where organising is going. Then we're going to open up the floor and give you guys an opportunity to ask questions um, of the panel today. Sounds good? Yeah. Excellent. All right, Jesse, let's uh, start uh, with you. Um, field organising or electoral organising, political organising, essentially the organisation uh, of uh, and mobilisation of large-scale volunteer capacity to go out and have conversations with voters um, on their doors uh, or on the phones is a, a reasonably new thing in Australia compared to in the United States. Um, and you certainly have been uh, on that embryonic journey dating back to 2010 right through to today. I just want to, uh, if you could share your thoughts and experiences on how organising in this country has, political organising in this country has evolved and become a central component to uh, centre-left campaigns. Okay, th uh, thank you, Stephen, and I'm very happy to be on Socially Democratic. As Spotify reminded me this week in my 2019 rap, I am clearly an avid listener, um, but it's taking a little bit too long to get me on, so I'll, uh, I'll hopefully make up for that today. Um, yeah, so it was a reasonably... The, the 2010 through 2014 period in Australian political organising was a very key period. Um, we had a lot of elections in that period. We had, I think, 11 between 2010 to 2014 across the country, and a lot of it... Yep. OK, I'll speak up. Um, OK. Yep, thank you. Um, uh, it's good. We've got a very vocal crowd. Glad to hear it. Um, so 2010 through 2014 was a very key period for electoral organising in Australia. We had, I think, 10 elections. I'm probably forgetting an ACT election across the country where we moved from... Well, the first election that I started um, helping with direct voter contact was the 2010 election in South Australia. Now, what we were doing there in comparison with what we did in 2014 in Victoria was an extraordinary jump in um, skill and strategy and training and capacity to actually turn people out. In 2010 in South, South Australia, we were definitely making a lot of calls. 
I remember at some stage we were holding up phone recordings of candidates to answering machines and the and thinking that would be the thing that switched a lot of votes. Um, and moving that to 2014, we were actually getting to the start of, uh, you know, building teams, giving responsibility to volunteers, actually empowering uh, people within our movement to take charge uh, of the campaign, which was a real shift. I think um, part of the reason it's been... We have a long way to go as well, I should mention, in field organising in Australia, and I'm very interested to hear from the other panellists on that front. Um, I think that one of the things that has been uh, uh, difficult for the movement of field organising across the period has been the significant change we see in party offices. Um, over that period, I think that we've probably only had one state secretary that has maintained um, their position uh, for eight years. That would be Reggie Martin. Um, broadly, we have a lot of change and churn that happened in our campaign wing. Uh, as a party, we haven't invested enough in giving campaign uh, longevity to um, to organisers and to field staff and that has meant that while that period of 2014 we've had expansive growth in the way we do things without that ongoing uh, context and experience being doubled down on election after election we won't move forward as quickly as we have. Thanks Jesse. I'll turn to you now Ben. Uh, in I've been lucky enough when I did work for the Labor Party uh, to travel overseas and meet uh, with a lot of uh, social democrats from around the world. Um, and I always got the impression, certainly from our European brothers and sisters, that uh, the uh, strategies around organising wasn't being adopted uh, um, as wholeheartedly as it has been done in the United States and in Canada and New Zealand and Australia and Great Britain. Um, but uh, we had a conversation last night and you certainly proved me wrong that that's not the case in, uh, in Sweden, which is, I'm really happy to be wrong on that. Can you just share with us um, a bit about your background and uh, your experiences with the um, Social Democrats in Sweden when it comes to organising? Yeah. Okay, so I, I would say you're probably not entirely wrong with that analysis, that um, uh, we haven't been adopting it, um, but there is movement to adopting it. Um, and I think that's the most positive thing for us. Um, if we put it into sort of like an historical cultural perspective, we have very strong uh, workers' parties in um, uh, strong. When I say strong, I mean sort of like organisationally strong parties in in uh, in Europe and and Scandinavia among others. And what we have is we have a um, over a longer period of time because we've been so successful is that we've we've stopped innovating a lot and we've actually sort of gone into our very sort of hierarchical structures which aren't these sort of campaigning structures that we're talking about. And so because we had so many members, uh, we were basically embedded in our local societies and when we were going to win an election, we could win an election because we actually had that group of people already engaged. So they didn't actually need to go out and knock on doors or do those things because those conversations were actually happening very naturally. Um, and we didn't need to to um, have a systematic approach to how we were doing campaigning because that stuff was just happening automatically. But that's not where we are today. And I think that there is in a lot of social democratic parties um, this idea that that party organisation still exists. And definitely for the Social Democrats, for a long, long time, I think in Sweden that we thought that party organisation still existed, but it didn't. You know, we had this large drop of membership. We lost 160,000 members from the end of the 90s to today. You know, that's, that's huge. And that means that we're not embedded anymore in our local society. So we actually need to start innovating. And so one of the things that we need to do is start innovating in sort of, you know, campaign contact. And so you, in our last Congress, we actually made a Congress decision that we would start organising people, like taking the Marshall Guns model and, and start rolling it out to our whole party. That's because we realised that we, we need to start doing these things. Um, we need to start sort of innovating within this, this very hierarchical structure, still sort of hold up that one because that, that gives us longevity. But this, this network-based organising model, which is... Uh, which is very innovative, that gives us the ability to create change. So we need to sort of support these too. So, you know, we've had a, a slow movement over the last, say, 10 years towards more um, uh, engaging voters and, and talking to them. In the uh, last two elections, we've done about 2 million conversations with a population or a voting population that's 7 million people. Uh, so we're, we're, we've come, a, you know, a little bit 
in that direction, but you know, we still have a long way to go to sort of match the US, who are pretty much talking to about 50% of their population. So we need to get maybe from 2 million to 4.5 million. That's, that's what we need to really get to. And so the question for us now is, you know, how do we take that? Uh, we've been forcing a lot through our party organisation. You know, how do we start then innovating with that, like introducing this, this network-style approach of campaigning into a very hierarchical structure? And that's a, that's a really important question because, you know, that's how our organisation can, you know, keep its legitimacy with its policy but still sort of create some sort of some, some prerequisites for change. And so, you know, we're, we're testing things, but we, we don't know if we're, we're getting there, but we know that we have to do it. And, you know, that's what innovation is. We don't know the solution. Sometimes we don't even know the problem. We just have to go out there and test stuff, and so that, that's where we're at at the moment. Just one quick follow-up question there. You mentioned um, Marshall Gans. Maybe for, to give some context for our audience, just uh, sort of summarise the Marshall Gans model of organising. Yeah, so it's... Um, it's a head. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, one thing that is really important to know about our political party is that we, we are not sort of a single-issue political party. We're very broad-based, and so traditionally we've been sort of this amalgamation of more conservative voters and more progressive voters, but at the end of the day, because we all value sort of some sort of security, we've landed in progressive politics, basically. And so I think this is where the Marshall Guns model really fits well, because it's, it's about this sort of this value-based relational organising that, that sort of brings people together and is built on relationships. So within, a, the, within this, this framework, there are sort of five key leadership practice. The first is story, so that we can actually sort of uh, talk from the heart and tell people why we're called to, to lead and actually start building sort of groups of people, new groups, new constituencies that, that can go out and then and, and, and um, uh, uh, create change. Uh, it's about sort of systematically building relationships, so that's a, another one of the key features, is building relationships and using those relationships then to create structures. Structures like teams, like you guys were talking about, to then go and, and support that engagement, because without that structure we can't support it over the long term. Then we need to think very, very strategically about what we're doing, so strategy is another thing that we, we, we look at. So it's about, you know, how do we create change? So and this is one of the things from our old party organisation, when we looked at what they were doing often, uh, you know, at 4%, you're, you're embedded, you can do whatever you want. But at, at 1%, 1.2%, where we are now, we have to start thinking a little bit more consciously about what we're doing. So strategy is important. You know, we can't stand there on the side of a road with a big banner and say, you know, vote the Social Democrats. It, it ain't going to work, um, basically. So you need to think strategically. And then, you know, how do we mobilise people? How do we act? And so that, that's basically the framework. So it's, it's, it's a lot of sort of small sort of models to help us think more consciously about the way that we engage people and engage them from the head, the hands and the heart, basically. That's an excellent sum it's summary. Uh, that's standing on the side of the road. It's called wobbleboarding in Australia. It should be banned. <laughs> um, okay. Now, story, as you said at the start, is, is, a, is one of the foundations of uh, uh, grassroots organising. Danielle, I'm... I think we are all dying to hear your story. How did you come to be involved in the Student Strike Climate campaign? Is this on? I think it is, yeah. Hello. Oh, it is. <laughs> yeah, so School Strike for Climate, we're a very new campaign, and most of us coming into it had absolutely no experience in grassroots organising and campaigning at all. So I, So in Sydney, we started campaigning on November 29th. That was our first big strike in Sydney and from there I was able to help out a little bit with logistics just because the p other people who were working on this were all teenagers. We help each other out when we can. And from there I had the opportunity to speak at the March 15th strike and became more involved in just the general organising and the campaign structure and the messaging of it. I think what you'll find with most people who are involved with School Strike for Climate is that we have no experience. I mean, I'm 15. I think most of you have been all, like involved in politics and organising longer than I've been alive. <laughs> so, yeah, really, it's just I'm passionate about it. We reach out to each other. We get our friends involved, and that's how I got involved. Um, tell us about the organising structure that you guys have uh, adopted. I find it quite fascinating how you managed to do this at the same time, you know, you've all got commitments with school and the like. Tell us how this, what does the structure look like? 
Yeah, so I can only really speak for Australia for the most part, and also my experience is as someone from the city. I have nothing in rural and regional outreach. But what it looks like for the most part is that we have a national team. And I'd like to point out that no one in these teams are elected. No one gets nominated to join them. As you get more involved, you just naturally join these teams because your work is needed there. So we have a national team, and then we have a state team, and then from there we have the teams within every major city in Australia. So what that looks like in Sydney is that we have a Sydney core team and we do most of the communication on a statewide level and then on a national level. And then within Sydney, we have regional teams. So what that looks like is that we'll have Sydney core team, there's about a dozen of us and we just balance everything with school. I don't know how either. And then we have like inner west, greater west, southwest, south, north shore, north coast, things like that. And then within the regional teams, we have electorate teams. And so that's a working group, a working team in every electorate in Sydney, every electorate in the state. And then what that looks like in structure and in organising events is that we don't ever have a single person who is given a leadership title or position and just a quick correction from earlier, I'm a organiser, not the lead organiser. I'm a lead organiser, but not the lead organiser. And I think that's key when it comes to School Strike for Climate. It's that it's incredibly important to recognise that within different projects, we're going to have different working groups, different people working on different things. And the most important thing that we can have in our organising is that for the most part, it is grassroots, but having something be completely grassroots and not having any form of structure means decisions take 10 years to be made. <laughs> so we do have that type of structure and then within that we have smaller working groups who work on different things and we're able to do outreach through there. Uh, second follow-up question. <laughs> uh, then moving on from building that structure, then how have you guys managed to develop a coherent strategy that everyone agrees on and then can execute together? Okay, so I think one thing to point out is that in democracy, no one ever fully agrees on anything, ever. <laughs> it just doesn't happen someone at one point might be shanked, but you know, you move on. <laughs> and so what that looks like is that we take the most important key messages that we want to get out there and we do a lot of outreach within our communities. We do a ridiculous amount of Zoom calls and polls. And then so with School Strike, we have three key messages, three core demands that we push for. It's 100% renewable energy and exports by 2030. No new foal, foal? coal or gas projects, including the Adani Carmichael coal mine, and a just transition for fossil fuel workers and their communities. And how that came to be was that we recognised what are the demands that we think are tangible, but also aren't too elusive. I think a major problem that a lot of social campaigns and even political campaigns have is that they have these ideas that they want to push to the public that at first sight they seem appealing, but if no one really understands what that means or what that looks like, it's never going to go anywhere. And so what we try to do our best to do is recognise what do we need and what can actually genuinely effectively be communicated. And from that, when you have core things that you're pushing for, that, ca that core thing that you're pushing for generally has an umbrella and under that there are multiple smaller actions that can be tangibly taken and pushed for within our local working groups and not only on a national level. Benedict, I want to uh, sort of talk to you now about um, recruitment, uh, vol bringing volunteers in, and, and Danielle just touched on a couple of the, the uh, online tools that are available to us all these days that we probably didn't have 10, 15 years ago, um, and your background is also in digital campaigning as well. I just want to get a sense of how you in Sweden have managed to uh, marry up 
the the work that we're doing online with online with offline. So, which how do you guys? What success rate are you having trying to move people who are in the online community that are very passionate that share our labour values or our social democratic values and mobilising them to come and actually go and do things and speak to voters um, in communities? Yeah. So, I mean, we, we've been working with um, uh, you know online, you know, just as long as everybody else, and um, to various degrees of success. Um, and so we have actually been sort of like we've invested in the, the you know the the constituents, the management systems, and, and things like that to basically be able to sort of collect people online and providing content there so they you know sign themselves up. Um, one of the things that we've found is that at, at the end of the day, that's actually not where a lot of our activists are coming from, um, even though they are sort of like self-selecting online and, and coming in. That's, that's not really where they come from. And um, if you look traditionally in, in Sweden, where membership has actually come from, it's come from existing structures. Uh, so, for instance, the labour movement came from workplaces. Yeah. So we traditionally have recruited people from workplaces. Um, the, um, the, the Christian Democrats, they had churches. Yeah, and that's where they were recruiting people, basically. We have also the, the Farmers' Party, which basically were recruiting from the, the, the super-local community structures that were already in place, and these are the, the, the three big sort of political parties in Sweden. And, you know, we find that that still, for us, is, is still the case. So even though we have these online, um, online communities where, where people can sign up and, and say that they want to take action, essentially, they're not where a lot of our people are coming from. Um, but having said that, you know, there is a lot of people coming in. And, you know, we had in the last election 16,000 people sign up to be new members of our party, uh, which is great. You know, we, we need that. Um, and, uh, but what we do have in place is we have that infrastructure. Uh, and it was really interesting to hear about the structure there because, you know, that is basically our sort of, like, party structure. That's it. And if you have it in place and if it works, then these people can come in very, very easily into the system. It, it is about creating a structure that is there already in place that is working so that when these people actually do sign up, there is somebody there to pick up the phone and say, hey, come to a meeting, mm. or come to an action. Jesse, uh, you are the Deputy Chief of Staff to uh, Daniel Andrews, uh, and Daniel in 2014 uh, was instrumental in the, uh, the success culturally within the Labor Party in Victoria for the Community Action Network. Um, he came along to so many events, big or small, um, and we, uh, we use Daniel uh, to help with our recruitment and bringing people from outside of the traditional uh, labour um, communities to get involved in our grassroots campaign. Um, story, we mentioned story before, you know, stories being one of the fundamentals of, of grassroots organising that Marshall Gans model. Um, you're now working for Daniel. How important is Daniel's story? How important are the stories of people in the community when it comes to communicating to uh, the, the electorate or volunteers at our message? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, story, you've probably um, nailed that in a couple of sentences. The story has been incredibly important to the way we communicate uh, through uh, Daniel's Facebook, but even in the speeches he gives and the events he attends. I think you'll probably see the strongest example of that in the coming um, communication that we'll do around the Mental Health Royal Commission that we've just um, handed down... Well, sorry, the commissioners have just handed down their interim report. Um, I think one of the, the key things to this was that um, when we were at uh, head office, uh, speaking to Daniel originally about his story and shaping that story and, and having him understand the structure of that and how important it was meant that he had a really strong sense of it through 2013 all the way through to today. Um, and it's something we've been able to uh, use. And I think a lot of you will be following his Facebook and you will see that we often take stories of Victorians and put them on there. And it, it, I think a lot of people just think that that's... Um, it's just content creation that we're we're trying to find uh, things just to fill the space there, but it has always been a central part of our messaging around uh, probably more the social aspects of our uh, agenda. So, uh, family violence royal commission, and that that was a really tricky one to talk about story and how people wanted to to relate um, to that issue. But um, mental health is the the one that's coming up, and that will be huge in that space. Um, while you're there, let's move on to one of the questions that was posed in the synopsis for today's uh, session, and that was, uh, was the, 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 late, the last Australian election 
uh, a, a repudiation of the current organising model. Uh, Jesse, is field dead? <laughs> um, yeah, look, it's it's so funny. Uh, Fields always seems to be under attack, uh, and it's it's hard sometimes when you sit back and think, why is it that we constantly have to justify why these structures work and why they are important to campaigning? Um, and I think there are, there are a bunch of reasons for that, but I, not to be someone who mentions the ALP review because I usually don't like it when I come to these people thing and things and people focus on the campaign reviews. But there are two parts um, that I'd like to call out, and the first one is in the digital section of the review. And the reviewers note that since the turn of the century, uh, fragmenting audience and the rise of digital media have diminished television status of the preeminent communication medium. And they go on to say that perhaps 2019 was the last mass advertising um, campaign we'll see in Australia. They then go on to say in the field section of the review, Labor did not win the electorates where field organising effort was concentrated um, and has led some to question where the field organising model remains the best approach available. So while on one hand questioning the idea that um, advertising is working, it's also saying, well, field clearly didn't work because we didn't win the seats where we organised. Um, I think that at least it does note that a lot of people point out that message is very important to a field structure. It is a way of communicating with people and if, you're, if your message isn't strong or if it's not landing, it's, it's not going to work no matter how many people you talk to. But I think that um, Anthony Albanese kind of nailed this yesterday when he gave that very um, impressive but also contemplative speech about the rise of social media and what it means for democracy. And he called on, on, on Labor people to reject the idea that we should just all sit online and shout into our own silos and uh, troll other people and decide if we don't agree with them that there's some fundamental reason that they, um, they have got this wrong and discount or cancel everything they say. And I think that he, he called on us to talk to each other with level heads. And there is no greater way to do that than through field organising. Um, I've found in the campaigns I've worked on, when we are talking about campaign messaging and we, we get the focus group stuff back and we talk about this, that and the other, one of the most helpful things that I can do is get on the phone to a bunch of field organisers and say, what are people actually talking about on the phones and on the doors? And it's something that we have to better integrate into our central strategy. Um, and it's something that um, that I think people in America recognise. Like when recently, um, I went on a study trip with Dunn Street um, to Good meet to, to meet with a uh, a bunch of uh, American campaign specialists. And when they heard that someone was a field organiser, they immediately sat up and were far more interested in what they had to say about the last federal election because they have a better appreciation and a better understanding of how much work goes in on the ground and how much, uh, how much value there is in a field organiser that's had thousands of conversations across a campaign. And that's a culture that we have to bring into Australian campaigning. I have a few th theories about why there is so much resistance. One of them is that it's harder to control. Um, if, you, if you hear about the, the, um, the students' climate strike, like that is a very flat structure where you are talking about uh, a fair bit of democracy about how these things have worked out. Um, it's, it's very difficult to sit in the back room and just sort of you know, pay your, your favourite um, pollster to come back and give you a message that you agree with and push it out and you're the, you're, you're the man on phone that is able to, <laughs> able to walk around and um, be the important one and know exactly what the groups say. It's a far more democratised and uh, even way of campaigning. The other, the other reason is that it's straight up hard work. It is really hard work. Um, not everyone is cut out to be a field organiser or to, 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 um, to spend days and days and days talking to um, Labor people about what's important to them. And because it's such hard work, there is a resistance to it. Um, it's a lot easier to sit behind a risograph and print out a bunch of um, pamphlets that you can post out and not actually have to do the hard grind behind it. Talking to someone about what's important to them is actually a very draining experience. Um, so I think they're some of the reasons why we keep getting this question. Um, but as long as uh, there is a decline in our um, advertising, uh, uh, consumption of advertising, um, online forums are becoming more and more polarised. And if we don't get out there and talk to people, I, like, we only become more and more uh, distant from the people we're supposed to represent. 
Benedict, I just want to get a sense from uh, your uh, experiences in, in Sweden. Is there, or has there been, you sort of alluded to it in your opening remarks, actually, talk about the institutional pushback that you're getting in Sweden. How are you overcoming those challenges? Um, yeah, like I said, the, um, a lot of the institutional pushbacks come from the fact that we have a very strong hierarchical structure. And uh, when I say hierarchical, I don't mean top-down. I mean, it's like it goes around and around and around. There's, you know, politics go up and then it's broken down, politics go up and broken down. So it's, it's not a bad structure in that way. Yeah. Um, but it does actually at some point squash innovation. And there's a really, really good way of squashing innovation. Uh, and that is just ask questions. You know, what is that about? Can you sort of describe that in more detail? Because a lot of innovation, you don't have the, the solutions, you don't really understand the problem, but you have to start doing stuff so that you go on a process where you can define it. And in this hierarchical structure, they, they want sort of like standard solutions and they, they want to know what's actually happening because that's what it's about. It's about delivering sort of standard products out. And so what we've found is that when we've tried to innovate, people just ask so many questions that you die. Yeah. yeah, and you know we, we don't know how this works in a Swedish context often you know maybe it's different maybe it's not you know but we do actually have to go out and start testing these things but if you don't have full control or full sort of uh, the ability to describe it, it it is easy to kill and so that's what has happened because it, it's, it's an alternative process to what we're actually used to actually but this way of working this way of innovating was actually how the party was formed basically back in the day and then we sort of like to deliver the, the, the politics on a standard basis all the time, we, we had to create hierarchy. But, so what we find is that you know, we have to actually understand that we have multiple structures within our party. We actually have to name that because you know, that then becomes a norm, something that we have to work with. We have to understand those different structures. But when we're innovating, we innovate within a network-based structure. And so what we find that we have to do is to create some sort of anchoring within the parties. You have to bring people over from that hierarchy into that innovation. Uh, and if they're not a part of it, then they're not sort of like propagating for it within that hierarchy. And then you find that you can actually sort of innovate, you know, quite freely once these people are there. And you can make sure that, you know, when the time comes to describe it, there is somebody there that can actually give it an account. Uh, they can sort of say, we've done this, this and this. And it's you know, resulted in these outcomes. Um, so I think that's very important. So one of the things that we're doing to um, uh, implement, implement organising uh, within our party is that, you know, we're taking all our parliamentarians, all our MPs, and we're actually educating them in storytelling. They don't need to know the whole organising framework, but they need to know a part of it, and they need to know a part of it that's relevant for them. And so where they stand up in, you know, in the parliament and they talk about their politics and they talk about their values, so it makes sense that they would learn storytelling. So we're going to do that. And we've seen already that you know, the, the people that get involved in that then go out and they sort of say how great this is and how we need to do more of it. And so it provides this, like, this room for us to actually not go out and describe exactly what we're going to do, but start going out and doing stuff so we can actually come back and tell them what we have done. Uh, Danielle, my question for you is uh, the critical work of organising is based in empowerment and empowering people and folks to let them do the things that they want to do. This is my yeah. um, to, uh, sorry, I'll repeat that question. The, uh, the critical work of organising is based around empowerment and letting people do the things that they want to do. Um, is uh, the student strike climate movement truly student-led or have the adult boomers got their hands on your campaign in any way? So this is one of the few questions that I get a lot, I think all of us do. And I think, firstly, it's a tiny bit insulting to assume that because we're teenagers, therefore we are inherently unable to comprehend how the world works, nor are we able to recognise, oh, climate change is bad, I would like to have a future. I think that's a pretty simple concept, and it's something quite easy for us to grasp. So I think it's a bit unfair that that is something we're asked so often. But no, it's not led by the adults at all, what it looks like. And why we have been so successful in terms of engagement is because we are student-led and we're able to share our stories and to share why we care about this from a humanitarian perspective. I mean, 
in September, we were able to turn out hundreds of thousands of people in Sydney, and yet we've never sent a single cent on advertising. We have never run a single campaign on, online that cost us even so much as a dollar. So what's really important here is that we are teenagers and we use the means available to us. What that looks like for the most part is social media, is writing posters and sticking them to walls and hopefully praying you don't get a detention, you know? <laughs> and so we, I mean, we're pretty innovative and we're able to recognize what's important to us and we act on that. I think that's something that's so great about my generation is that we look at what's not working for us, we look at why that's not working, who's responsible for that, and then we go and eat them. Yeah. So, yeah, in short, we're a bunch of teenagers and we just want a future, which is why we do this, and if anything, the most help we do get from the adults is A, stealing their office space, and B, asking them for money, or C, using them as marshals. And I think that really is the extent of it. Great. What, uh, we, uh, uh, just want to get a sense of how many questions we have in the room, how much time we allow. So, okay, we've got questions. Okay, good. What we might do is just uh, we'll ask each of the panellists just to give us a bit of a summary of where they think uh, organising is going. Uh, into the future. What is the, what is the future for organising in, in your environments that you're in right now? So I'll start with you, Daniel. So I think ours would be very different from yours in the sense that we are mostly mobilising young people and that we all live on our phones. I mean, I've never touched a landline in my life. <laughs> but what ours looks like is a lot of working groups and giving people the opportunities to act on things they care about because People are passionate about things because of their own lived experiences. So when we create really broad organizing structures that allow for people to create working groups, to create projects, and then empower them with the resources that they need for that, that's how we get real change. Because revolutions like what we're trying to achieve are achieved by the people in the spaces and lines between what you see on the news. And that's why we have been so successful. And that's where I think where it's that trajectory that we're still on. And that's where we're going to keep going. Um, there's, a, there's a great researcher called Hari Han who wrote a book called How Organisations Develop Activists and uh, she writes that uh, the, the act of, uh, sort of participating in democracy is actually not something that we're born with and I think that that's really, really important for us to know both as sort of old political parties who haven't actually been looking at these processes and haven't actually been looking at organising and how you'd have, like we, we feel that we have because our parties have been going, but we haven't actually been de developing the leadership needed to actually uphold these structures. And when we haven't been doing that, then we haven't been teaching our democracy. Uh, and, you know, people need a taste of democracy. So for us, I mean, this comes down to actually, you know, systematically creating the leadership needed to support democratic institutions. Yeah, because those leaders aren't there today. And that... That involves both, um, for us, I mean, we, we have like the campaigning, which is, you know, about teaching them, you know, how to be great organizers, how to bring other people into a movement and how to sustain that movement over a long period of time. But then we also have these other things like our internal party structures. And so I think that that is a, a, another type of, not organizing, but organization, which I think is, is another thing that we need to add to this this sort of like this this repertoire or this 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 toolbox that we have is we need to sort of amalgamate these two as well. How do we create the the the, sh the change that we need, but also make sure that we're there over the long term? Uh, because if we're not, then you know, other people are setting the agenda. Great, Jesse. Yeah, I think that um, what I'm going to say is very very much in line with that. I think as long as we keep conceptualising persuasion and campaigns as pop-up organisations um, where we think that once every three years we start recruiting people to start uh, changing people's votes, um, we're, we're not going to be able to have a sustainable sort of network of organised, um, from our perspective, uh, labour labour people out there selling the message. I though acknowledge that that takes that there's a lot of challenges with that. That's expensive if you're trying to um, put in paid work. It it, um, it 
takes a lot of um, ongoing maintenance and, um, and and love and over a three-year period where you've got these fights happening in Parliament and on on the Hill and 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 what party officers kind of have to have to get through like when it comes to even the internal democracy that runs within the Labor Party and the focus the party officers have to put on that. So there are a lot of challenges, but again, as long as we keep t treating campaigns as something that happens for six weeks before polling day, um, we are going to consistently build up a volunteer network and have it fall down, build up a volunteer network and have it fall down. Um, and until we get that right, and I don't think anyone in Australia yet has properly, in an electoral sense, worked out how to maintain those networks, and until we crack that, it's going to be an ongoing challenge and it's going to be harder and harder for us. Thank you. Uh, I, the term continuous campaign is a pet hate of mine. We'll get to questions in a moment. Um, is a pet hate of mine. I don't know why it is. I just don't like that term, continuous campaigning, because there's another word for it, and it's called organising. If you're organised, if you've developed your organising structures, and you've empowered volunteers and volunteer leadership to set the agenda in their local communities, then that what will happen is they'll continuously campaign. But it starts with organising. Now, let's go to questions. Yes, sir, you're very ready to go. Yeah, I want to take people back to work choices and the way in which we could organise very quickly against the threat of that campaign. I was active through the union that owns this building and went through trades and labour councils, unions, um, parliamentary officers. But then, uh, maybe you'll reject my characterisation, but I want to ask, my, my first question is, was that a good model? My second question is that we've got a right government and then there was a bit of a... And that whole structure just—it was a bit of pushback from the professional politicians who were saying, "Well, okay, you guys can go away now. We'll take over here. You go back to your media." And it fell apart very quickly. But my question is still: maybe you don't like my characterisation, but my question is also: is that a good model? Stephen's laughing because I think this is a lecture I've given him several times. Um, yeah, I. I was similarly on a Your Rights at Work campaign in 2007 and um, I'd been at the ACTU in 2005 when that, when that started. Um, look, I, I, I think that it's very difficult for me to know whether that characterisation is correct. You know, I wasn't in all the rooms, I'm sure there were a lot of discussions at the time. That's certainly, that's certainly how it felt. And I think that it felt like for those people who got involved in that momentous campaign that you got sent a badge, which was lovely, we all got those little metal badges about being involved and sent merrily on our way. And I think some unions did a, did a really good job of um, keeping those, uh, those organisers um, from their communities engaged, others not so much. And I think the ACTU is doing some very interesting things in this space um, off the back of the last federal campaign. I'll be very interested in what comes out of their work. Um, but I think that you've kind of nailed certainly the emotion that has come from when we keep building up campaigns and then letting our volunteers down in one sense. Like if you talk to, to field organisers after the 2014 Victorian campaign, volunteers started calling them afterwards, mm. being like, OK, we're in December, the election's happened. When are we meeting up next? What are, what are we doing? Um, and the organiser was like, well, I've packed up the office. I'm not being paid anymore. And, like, I'm trying to find out what I'm doing the rest of my life because this was a short-term contract I've been given. Um, and, and in some pockets in Victoria, there has been consistency. I think the Latrobe area, um, the federal electorate of Latrobe and the, Mon the seat of Mombog has been really successful at keeping those, those community networks together. But it hasn't been as good everywhere. And um, while I don't feel I have an answer for you, I certainly think that we can all relate to the emotion that sat behind that question, that we feel like we achieve big things and then we just let it go. Uh, yeah, that was a great question. I was a uh, trade union organiser for the Transport Workers Union in South Australia and I think at, at that time and I found that um, the sentiments and what they wanted to achieve at that time were excellent. Uh, and just to echo Jesse's remarks, it, I think I felt it was patchy, uh, both in uh, how we apply this stra strategy um, and our organising structures as well, which is not easy because you know the union movement is huge. Um, there are you know a lot of unions with a lot of branches, with a lot of organisers, a lot of staff right across the country. So getting your organisational structure 
uh, for a campaign right is difficult. So the, what they tried to achieve was they were you know aiming for the stars and they probably hit the moon. So I think that was it was a great campaign and yes, it was tragic that it didn't continue on and I don't I don't know why we've all everyone was pointing the finger at each other about what fell over um, but it didn't and that's the reality and I'd like for us to one day be able to see say the Community Action Network uh, be applied right across the country and to start to work with uh, build coalitions with other organisations that share our values and also want to share our strategy of what we're trying to achieve be it at an electoral sense or in just a uh, trying to have wins on issues throughout the, the electoral cycle uh, yes the lady next to I just want to make a comment. In even Monero, it's not just a question of what do the campaigners feel. I think it's a very good question of what the voters feel. Mm. Because a lot of voters on pre-polling and door knocking said, what, what gives with you guys? Why do you just turn up now? Mm. What, what the hell? You know, <laughs> where were you in the previous elections? Mm. They want to see participation mm. in those in those grassroots organisations, what Benedict was talking about, the, the, the things like the, the, the ethnic groups, and, and Mike Kelly did so well in even Monero, because everywhere we seem to go, the Macedonians would say, we're going to vote for Mike Kelly, because he always comes to our dances. <laughs> and, and things like that, like yeah. 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 So, let's think about what do the voters think and say, because it's not just a campaign. Right. Do you want to give a comment to that? I, I think community embeddedness is the, the goal for us. Uh, I, I think that we, we differ very much from parties of the right in that we are very much movement-based in these ways, and so we're very much sort of a part of the, the civil society, basically. Uh, and so if we start divorcing ourselves from the civil society and all those other organisations that are out there, then we start divorcing ourselves from, you know, what you could call as our base, basically. And so, you know, the civil society is anything from the union movement to these dancers. And, um, you know, that's, that's, they're, the, they're the arenas in which we have to play. Yeah. Okay, I'm just going to jump on this side quickly. Uh, yes, you're in the front there. I'm hoping to invite reflections from the whole panel, if I can. I'm lucky enough to have worked on a successful campaign that made use of the distributed model that you're talking about, where our regional groups, that was our structure, were entirely autonomous. We gave them materials and said, this is what we care about, this is the goal, go and do what you need to do to get that done. But we had a lot of resistance to that in terms of we wanted to do new things that no one had done before, and we made what we thought were very polite and persuasive arguments about we've been failing for X amount of years, perhaps we could try something new, because the worst thing that will happen is will fail, and that situation normal. Uh, and we were lucky enough to be able to make our own way with that campaign. But I'm wondering what you would do to then bring those successful tactics, right? Because it's that circular argument you were talking about of how do you know this is going to work? Like, what's the question? You go, well, we never tried it before. That's why we want to try it, to see if it works, to build the evidence, to then come back and do it. How would you bring that back into those structures, whether they be union or political parties or other organisations? One of the ideas I've been toying with is setting up a separate but internal team, like you call it the innovation or doing crazy new things team, and let them go and try and fail and use the fail fast model to see what might work. But I'd really like your reflections on what you think you might do. Yeah. <laughs> Give us a minute. Um, I mean, I think something that it's important to recognise is that whenever you do new things, you're going to get resistance. And there's a point where you have to be like, okay, these teams that are autonomous to us, you don't want to overreach that. And so it's fair enough to just have the people who are on board act on that and have some people not be involved in that. Because I think something that's important to recognise is that Yes, this might work, but the people who know what's going to work in their areas are the people who live there. And not everything that works somewhere is going to work everywhere. I think it's important and it's very valuable to be like, yes, this is a new thing we're trying and we want to try this and we want this to work. And so what you do is that you find other people who want to try it and you make it work and then you show that it works. But it's 
on that other hand, it's incredibly important to realize that these people are very against it, and maybe you just need to accept that some new ideas aren't always going to work because the people who know what's going to work best are the people who are on the grounds and who are talking to their communities. And I think that what, I mean, even just with what we do, school strikes are an incredibly radical idea. It's something that's never really happened before, but you need to adapt radical ideas to work in that context. For example, in Australia, we've had three major strikes, whereas in Eastern Europe, they have a major strike every Friday. And so that's recognizing that some radical ideas, they're just not going to work everywhere, but the important thing is to realize that they can be changed and adopted to work in that context. And that's how you make things work in a structure where you do have autonomous working groups who are able to recognize what works for them. It's about adopting things and changing it to work in that context and being able to understand why people feel that way and also be able to accept, you know what, maybe you hate this idea and that's also okay. Um. I mean, it was interesting, the question that you asked earlier about, you know, how do you strategize within these large sort of like, uh, you know, the, the distributed groups. And, and I think that um, a lot of the innovation is a little bit like that. You know, you are uh, developing models of, of these uh, new innovative things, but then you actually have to apply them to the context. Yeah. But it still doesn't really solve a lot of the time, you know, how do you create that space to actually start innovating in the first place? Um, because even though we might have sort of different levels, I mean, it can be squashed on all levels. It can be, and, and it will be. In fact, a lot of the research around, um, you know, where does, um, where does monopol monopolistic tendencies happen in our organizations is actually not at the top, it's down the bottom, which is really, really interesting because, you know, that's oftentimes where the, um, where the, um, uh, where the innovation is actually squashed. Um, and so, I mean, we, we have to sort of know these things. It's not just the top that is actually suppressing us. It, it's, it, it happens all over the place. And so um, I talked earlier about the idea of vision. The vision is something that is very concrete. It's something that happens here in the now that we can apply in the future. And, and I think that that is a very, very sort of like important thing for us. People are always going to say, you know, we, we can't go to people and say, this doesn't work, so we need to change it. Nobody's going to listen. That's just how it is. No, nobody is going to listen because they're all sitting in a structure where there are established norms and established modes of, of thinking and operating. And it's hard to get people to move out of those. So you actually have to create the prerequisites for creating that, that vision of the future. And that is about actually just going out and doing it. You have to go out and do it. You have to find people that want to do it together with you. You can't do it by yourself. That's the big thing. Uh, and then once you have found something and there is acceptance for it, there is a built-up norm around it that people think that this is actually quite good to actually implement it in an organisation, there has to be a certain amount of productification done in it. You actually have to have a model that people can actually use and a model that is flexible in, in different contexts. So, for instance, like the, the Marshall Guns model of story, challenge, choice, outcome, you know, it's, it's, it's a simplistic model, not a reductionistic model, but it can be applied in very many different situations. And so it's easy then to apply over different areas and in different contexts. And so I, I think that's the process, you know, create this vision, but it's about, you know, getting the space to do it, going out and doing it, provide something concrete, and then actually making a product of it, uh, a, you know, a model that you can actually show other people and then, you know, that gives you the prerequisites for scaling up through the whole organisation. Um, and just one other remark, uh, in 2013, when we first started doing this in Victoria uh, for the 2013 federal campaign, um, we identified where we thought we would have um, roadblocks for institutional change within the party. Uh, and then we started to look at people who we thought may be allies to help us bring about institutional change. And we brought them out to where we were doing the work. Um, which isn't easy all the time, but one of the very first people to come to a phone bank in Ringwood above a fish and chip shop on a Wednesday night was Daniel Andrews. And there was 25 people there, of which only three of them were members of the Australian Labor Party, and they were making calls for that campaign. And Daniel saw that, and he went and spoke to all the people, and he made a call himself, and he walked back downstairs and turned to his staff and said, we need this next year. And that was just one example of bringing people into the work that you're doing, letting them see what's actually happening, 
uh, and convincing in that way as opposed to because you can talk to your, you know, blue in the face to people at them what we're doing, why it's amazing, and here's the data, and I need you on board, and you know, if until I see it, sometimes you know, it's a bit, it all depends on how we learn, right? Uh, so that was our experience anyway. Yes. Uh, yeah, Danielle, I see you're rocking the Stoppadani earrings today. Um, there was a lot of grumbling yesterday, including by Anthony Albanese, about the Stoppadani convoy in North Queensland. Of course, we know for every one Stoppadani T-shirt in North Queensland, there were two Stardani T-shirts being worn by members of the CFMU. Um, the relationship between Labor and the Greens is extremely antagonistic, um, and climate change is arguably the most divisive issue there is in Australia. We've got 10 years to do something about it, um, and not the whole world. How are we going to do it? (laughs) (laughs) So, I guess quickly my first point on that is that whilst we do push for this change, we can't give you all the answers because I don't know... As of yesterday, I became qualified enough to go to TAFE. So I can't tell you everything. But... What's I going to say? I think one of the biggest problems we face is that we treat climate as an issue that needs to be politicised. And I think that's a massive issue because we've never seen an imperative on such a scale that climate change is, and yet we feel the need to put it on party lines. I think that's incredibly harmful to actual progressive change because it means we're not looking at solutions that work for us, we're looking at why our solution, their solutions aren't working. And so what I think that looks like for Labor especially in like in particular is looking at what other parties have but also what the people that listen to you have i think a big problem that we do have especially within what for example what the school strikers learned from the last election when we were watching the election the entire national team was on a call and we were crying And what came out of that within 24 hours was a third demand calling for a just transition for all fossil fuel workers and their communities. It's about looking at what the people who listen to you care about, what they care about, and what they act on. It's firstly a fundamental misunderstanding of the science, but also people are scared. They see climate change, and I like what we know is that People not believing in climate change, that's not the issue. The reason people don't vote for climate action is because it's a scary thought and they don't they don't see strategies for how these policies can be implemented but still protect their livelihoods and their well-being because I think it's completely unfair to say we don't need coal and only push the messages that we don't want coal. Because People need coal. That's their communities, and it has been for generations. So I think we need to look at how do we create that transition and how do we make it so people can feel secure in that and actually trust it. I think that's something that needs to be pushed on all sides of politics. We need to stop politicising it, and we need to have people understand what happens and understand what that means for them. Um, so my, my question was about, um, so we, I think one of the head hates, we know head hates is definitely how we think of field organising as an extension of our media strategy, um, and how, like, when we do goal work and persuasion, we're essentially organising some people and not organising the other half. Um, and I'm a, I'm a union organiser in, in the finance sector union, and my job is not to just talk to everyone on the line to get the commitment to join the union, because that doesn't build power, because... Um, we actually need them to activate. I want to like, restructure the way they communicate with each other. I want them to meet before work, talk about the problems, find solutions before work. Um, I actually want to restructure the way that they are organised. Um, and so I just want to make that comment and think um, in Labour, like, like our organising strategy is much of an extension of our media strategy. And how do we tackle that? Um, and how do we actually reorganise our communities? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a great question, and I think it's one that uh, relates separately to different states and to different types of elections. Um, I know that we've mentioned Victoria a lot, and I'm going to do it again, um, but I think that that is a state where it is not... The, the field 
program is not an extension of the media um, of the media cycle. Um, I think that there's been some discussions about how to get some earned media off the work that's happening, but it's certainly not something that was ever considered to be a, um, a media strategy. But when I was on the federal campaign in 2013, it was a definitely a part of our media strategy. We wanted, we wanted to talk about that we'd made a million phone calls and that this is what's happening in each state and we wanted to pump out numbers of which candidates have made which calls. And part of that was generating a bit of competition. Like, there's always part of that in your... Um, in your, in your strategy to try and motivate people to make more calls or, or talk to more people. Um, but it's certainly, I, I do agree, in some, some contexts, um, the field strategy can be boiled down to phone calls as opposed to an organising program that looks very similar to what you just outlined about uh, people meeting before work to talk about how they're going to change their workplace. And, and those sort of meetings have happened in, in Victoria, but, um, again, that there is still another step and another beat that we can go up in, in terms of sustainable long-term teams. Um, and I think that different campaigns in Victoria excelled at it. I think the Yan Yang campaign in 2014 was particularly good at actually having a proper team structure, and that was probably the first one. But others, it was like a sweatshop. You'd walk into the back of the... Um, at the back of the office and there's like 13 young Labor kids just like pounding through phone calls as opposed to actually trying to connect with a voter and a lot of that comes down to how much effort you put into your training program and the primacy you give it and how much you care about um, making sure the people on your campaign feel empowered, they feel connected with the campaign, they understand the strategy and they have been well trained to have conversations and connect with voters. Um, and that's the same as the work you would do about um, training delegates to talk to their co-workers and giving them the skills and the confidence to do that. Um, but, yeah, patchy is probably the, the theme word from um, today's panel. It, it is patchy, um, and it's, it, there are a lot of challenges, including you know, resourcing this type of campaigning over a long period. The second thing I just want to add to that uh, uh, statement is, um, you know, we can't get too consumed by output uh, in an election campaign, the amount of doors we knock, the amount of calls we make. That's really, really important. It's all important work. But as you know, as Benedict mentioned before, the five fundamentals of, of organising, you know, story, relationship building, structure, strategy, action, you need to do all of those things. Um, I don't know if you guys have heard of the expression, a cafeteria Catholic. I'm a cafeteria Catholic. I pick and choose the bits of Catholicism that I like and the bits that I don't like and don't touch. In field, you cannot be a cafeteria field organiser. You have to embrace all five fundamentals of field organising, and that is the problem that we're having right now nationally with our field program, is that from state to state, they're picking and choosing the bits they like. And what we need to be doing is embracing all five fundamentals, and when we are doing that, our field organising capacity will be in a far greater, stronger shape than it has ever been, uh, and we will be a far more effective campaign unit going to the next state or federal territory election. Mm -hmm.